You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. The U.S. House Oversight Committee will hold its first hearing on the impeachment inquiry of President Biden next week. House Republicans are accusing the president of improperly benefiting from his son Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings while Joe Biden was vice president. So far, they have yet to produce evidence of wrongdoing or direct financial benefit for the president. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the impeachment inquiry will allow them to investigate more fully. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers. I believe the president would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. The House committee says the first hearing next week will focus on constitutional and legal questions surrounding the president, and they are subpoenaing bank records of Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his brother, James Biden. The White House has called the impeachment inquiry baseless and a political stunt. Our next guest is here to help us preview the hearing and how the impeachment inquiry could unfold with the threat of a government shutdown just days away. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you support this impeachment inquiry into President Biden? Why or why not? What, if anything, do you hope comes out of it? What questions do you have about how this all works? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Susan Johnson is an associate professor of political science and associate dean in the College of Letters and Sciences at UW-Whitewater. Susan, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. We're hearing the I word impeachment a lot lately here in Wisconsin and now in the U.S. Congress again. Can you briefly remind us? When we're talking about a president or other federal official, how does this impeachment process work? So it is uh, the Constitution very uh, succinctly indicates that uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors, there is the opportunity to remove federal officials from office using this uh, impeachment process. And as we know, it has been used quite infrequently at the presidential level, although in the past um, few decades, it's been used more commonly. So those those people who are, you know, have been were born in the 80s and beyond or even the 70s and beyond would think about this as maybe something that's more common than, in fact, it was historically when there had only been one um, impeachment and not removal. And so it's um, it's an interesting time that now we had a presidential impeachment in 2019 and then 2021, and now we're in 2023, and we're talking about potentially another one. Can you talk about the basis of being offered by House Republicans for, you know, why opening an impeachment inquiry against President Biden and, and why now? Well, I think that's it's interesting because unlike prior impeachments where there has been something quite tangible that has led to the opening of an inquiry. What we're finding in this instance is that it's much more amorphous. House Republicans have been investigating uh, President Biden and his family now for a while in regard to um, what may have happened between President Biden when he was then Vice President Biden and influence that may have been exerted by his son, Hunter Biden, 
in some of his business dealings with Ukraine and China. And so it's, it's important to understand that there have been hearings ongoing in Congress and they've yet to really unearth anything, uh, quote unquote, smoking gun that would normally then initiate impeachment hearings. Right. Uh, We've had House Republican-led committees doing these investigations. We heard Speaker McCarthy there saying this will give the committee the full power to gather facts. Are there things that House committees can do under the auspices of an impeachment inquiry that they couldn't do without that? They can make requests to the White House for information and things like that. They um, it, it just has more weight when we're thinking about impeachment. And so in that regard, there are are certain liberties that they can take that the White House will feel compelled to respond to that they might otherwise not have felt compelled to respond to if during just this investigation. But then I think it's also uh, probably more important to recognize that there's a political mm-hmm. implications from holding impeachment hearings versus just investigatory hearings because impeachment carries with it a certain weightiness that investigation doesn't. And the uh, the accusations here, especially from the president and his supporters, is that this is a, a political act uh, with the 2024 elections in mind. Uh, what do you make of, of that response from the president and his supporters? I think that it it is a something being done with uh, politics in mind. I think that also it is much more proximate to what's happening with uh, the potential government shutdown at the end of the month and some of the promises that Speaker McCarthy made to members of his caucus in order to get their support to finally be elected Speaker back in uh, when he went up for Speaker and we had so long before he was actually elected. And then I think on top of that, there's also this idea, and I, I mentioned it before, that we've had two impeachment hearings in the past few years. And so it's just not... I guess it's not uncommon anymore. And it's also important to note that um, ideas about inquiries into impeachment were introduced on the first day of the new Congress by, for example, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. And others have been talking about impeachment now since the Republicans took control of the House. Talking to Susan Johnson, political scientist at UW-Whitewater, talking about the launching of an impeachment inquiry by House Republicans targeting President Biden. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 with your reactions, your questions. Chris joins us now in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. uh, So my question is, uh, how can this be an actual impeachment, if you want to call it that, without going to the floor for a full vote in the House. Chris, thanks for the call. There's been debate over this, uh, Susan, both in this one and in the impeachment inquiry proceedings uh, going forward against former President Trump. The question of does the House need to vote to launch an inquiry in the first place? Uh, How is that all shaken out? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question that, that Chris raises. And Historically, again, in past impeachments, there was a vote on the floor of the House to launch this inquiry. Then in 2019, 
when there was the first attempt, the first impeachment of President Trump and the attempt to remove him, there initially was no vote on the floor of the House. And many people surmised that to be because there were some Democrats who didn't want to take that vote. And Nancy Pelosi, a speaker at the time, was trying to protect them. So there was a lot of pressure. And then ultimately, shortly after calling for the investigation, she then did hold a vote on on the floor of the House. And all but two Democrats, I believe, supported that. In 2021, in President, former President Trump's second impeachment, there was no vote. But the interesting thing that happened between 2019 and 2021 is that the Trump Department of Justice issued a a directive or a ruling that said that um, it would not be appropriate or correct or valid. It would not be a valid impeachment inquiry if there was not a vote on the floor of the House. So that has been something that Republicans have spoken about a lot in regard to particularly the 2021 impeachment hearings. And so it's it's interesting, ironic, or whatever you know word you want to use, that um, now Speaker McCarthy is moving forward without something that he pushed for quite strongly. We're talking to UW Whitewater political science professor Susan Johnson about the impeachment inquiry into President Biden ahead of the first House committee hearing on that next week. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about that decision uh, to launch this impeachment inquiry into President Biden? What do you think about the politics connected to it? Join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you, coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Susan Johnson, political science professor and associate dean at UW-Whitewater. She's with us to look ahead to next week's House committee hearing on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the decision by House Republicans to launch the inquiry? What questions do you have about how it works, why it's happening now, how it might play into the potential for a government shutdown. Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Basil is with us on the Menominee Reservation. Basil, hello. Hello, and thank you for taking my call. In my language, it's Match Waiwan and Kaitana Namua. Okay. And what did you want to bring up, Basil? Well, I'm, what, what I'm doing is I've been, I've been watching this, you know, quite closely, and I've been watching, you know, as far as the 15 rounds that McCarthy had to go, 15 times they had to, you know, vote for him to become speaker in the first place. And there's a group of Republicans, and I don't like to use the bad words that, are, that people people use regarding, you know, uh, these these people that, that that are fighting against everything. To me— being a veteran, being a person, being a small business owner, uh, being a trucker. Um, you know, I may be paying a little bit more for fuel nowadays and everything like that, but I'm going to tell you something. These people right here, they have to – McCarthy, it seems to me, is stuck in, his, uh, in the middle of things. He has to do something for them. He has to throw them a bone and do this impeachment inquiry. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to be looking at him and they're going to be one guy, one person, one female, one one person can jump up and call for his for his speakership. 
Basil. Thanks a lot for the call, Susan. You uh, touched on that briefly. Can you talk a little more about the politics within the Republican House caucus that, uh, as Basil points out, have Speaker McCarthy in a tight spot? Yeah, um, many people would, are you know, curious that it's been this long that he's faced, Speaker McCarthy has faced such a challenge in regard to people who are, they're openly threatening him. So, for example, uh, Congressperson Matt Gates from Florida has been openly taunting Speaker McCarthy with threats about calling to vacate the chair and, uh, you know, not being satisfied even with calling for the inquiry. So there's a lot of politics involved. And again, like as I alluded to earlier, we've got 2024, we have the potential shutdown of the government and um, so many other things that are going on right now. And, um, you know, one thing that's important to point out is that just because an inquiry has been launched doesn't mean that we will ever get to the point Mm -hmm. where there's a formal vote even for impeachment or articles of impeachment brought. Thanks a lot for that call, Basil, at 800-642-1234. Willem joins us now in Colfax. Willem, hello. Hi. I think, you know, the congressman that you've mentioned, part of the ironically called Freedom Coalition or whatever they are, they're all supporters of the former president, and they marched to his tune, and he said that he was going to be, you know, the vengeance president, the IMU retribution, all these things. And this is why they're doing this, because... You know, Hunter Biden might be a a problem for his father and his family, but no one elected him. He's not a member of the government, unlike Jared Kushner, who was a special advisor to the president of the United States. Two days after the president left office, he got $2 billion from the Saudi royal fund. What's that about? Why don't we investigate that? I mean, these people, it's just about the big lie. And... The big lie has always historically gotten people into trouble. Nothing good comes from this. Willem, thanks a lot for the call, Susan Willem, pointing toward uh, the connection uh, between supporters of impeachment here and former President Trump. And Willem says turning a blind eye to uh, President Trump's family's dealings uh, after coming out of uh, serving in the White House. Well, I think that um, a couple of things and that uh, Willem sort of alluded to is that we're talking about things that, potentially, even if they happened, uh, took place while President Biden was Vice President Biden 10 years ago. And again, there's no solid evidence that anything happened. But as far as the investigation goes, the route is a, a long time ago. That is quite different than impeachment hearings more recently in the uh, 20th and 21st century. Those were regarding events that happened while the person was in office. So that's a distinction. And then the other thing I would say is that absolutely, former President Trump has been very clear encouraging members of the Freedom Caucus and others to pursue these impeachment investigations. Well, and thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. Looking at the House Republican decision to launch an impeachment inquiry targeting uh, President Biden. Susan Johnson is with us from UW-Whitewater. And you could join in at 800-642-1234 if you have thoughts, reactions, or questions for our guests. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Susan, I want to get into this uh, government shutdown risk. Now, we have again and again uh, in this last 
last few days, really, uh, before that deadline looms of votes that don't approve parts of the federal spending package uh, while this uh, impeachment inquiry is being lost or launched, I should say. Uh, Why is the House having trouble passing uh, anything on the budget? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to, again, some of those same members in the House of Representatives, the Freedom Caucus, that some of our callers have referenced in in their questions. And it's a similar group of people who are really digging in their heels in regard to what they're willing to go along with. There was a, a framework agreed to by President Biden and Speaker McCarthy months ago that had to do with the debt ceiling and other issues that we were dealing with prior. And So the framework of the spending had already been set, and then the job became to pass the spending bills necessary to then keep the government funded. And what's happening now is that the members of Speaker McCarthy's caucus who are balking are saying that, that they didn't agree to that framework, and they want a lot more cuts to be made than what had been agreed to. And what's interesting, and this is even some Republicans have been quite critical, is that even the defense authorization bill, which is usually a huge bipartisan win, can't get passed because of what's going on with a small number of House Republicans. I want to get into potential political fallout, Susan. Uh, We don't have a lot of precedent to work with uh, when it comes to impeachment inquiries, impeachment efforts. Uh, But what do you think about when you wonder, you know, who will this hurt Republicans for pursuing an impeachment inquiry? Will it hurt uh, President Biden in his election campaign? What are some of the things that uh, could determine the answers to those questions? I think that one of the things that will determine the impact of these hearings is how long will they go and what type of information will be put out there. And so I think that if it ultimately gets to the point where there are articles of impeachment brought and those are supported in the House by a majority, and then we have to go to a a trial in the Senate, that's a very different political environment, particularly if this is going on into the election season than if this investigation just, you know, wraps up. Because we still don't know to what extent this is Kevin McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, again, just trying to placate members of his caucus by allowing these hearings to go forward. And so I think that's a a big issue for me is in terms of what the fallout is going to be, is, is what actually happens from here. And staying with the theme of political fallout, if we, in fact, uh, have a partial government shutdown and we start to see some key services uh, start to go undone. A lot of things still happen after during a shutdown, uh, but some things don't. How does the blame usually get assigned when we've we've been at this point in the past? Republicans have not done well historically when the government has shut down. And that's generally, um, you know, the party that is sort of leading the charge. And in this case, there is no doubt who is leading the charge. It isn't even the entirety of the Republican Party as much as it is a handful of members. But um, I think that if history holds, then we would see some blame laid out as in, for the Republicans. 
and Susan, I'd love to ask you this in our last minute or so, talking with your students about the latest current events. I know you like to do that. What kind of things are you emphasizing to them as we watch uh, yet another uh, in recent history, yet another impeachment inquiry? Well, I mean, again, for students, this is just par for the course. I mean, you think of, you know, college age students, this will be their third go round since they've been in high school. So it's just not as uh, momentous, honestly, I think, as it is for for you or I, but certainly, um, you know, paying uh, keen attention to it nonetheless. Susan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Happy to do it. That's Susan Johnson, Associate Professor of Political Science and Associate Dean in the College of Letters and Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. She joined us today to help preview next week's House Committee hearing for the Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Biden. You can follow reporting on that from our colleagues at NPR on our website, WPR.org. Coming up Monday on Central Time, high technology and big books collide. John Grisham... George R.R. Martin and other big-name, high-profile authors are launching lawsuits against the creators of so-called artificial intelligence programs, your chat GPTs and others, saying that they're scanning and then imitating their work, scanning and then scamming their work, in effect. Find out what's at stake for the creative world, for artificial intelligence technology, and for the books available for us to read. And you can share your thoughts on that. Are you worried about... uh, Your favorite authors having knockoff versions created by artificial intelligence. It's already happened with George R.R. Martin, it looks like. Share your thoughts right now. Ideas at WPR.org is our email. That's ideas at WPR.org. Also coming up on Monday, online retailers over the years made it pretty easy to return products, though that's starting to change. But when we return our stuff, what happens next? Find out why easy returns have created a new hidden economy around the world. Those conversations and more coming up Monday here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. A new investigation from the Washington Post finds that electric vehicle companies have extensive connections to companies in China accused of forced labor and other abuses. Several EV manufacturers, including Tesla, Ford, and Volkswagen, have suppliers with connections to Chinese Xinjiang province. Forced labor is so common in that province that the U.S. enacted a federal ban on products made there because it's virtually impossible to tease out which products from the region use forced labor. The U.S. has accused Beijing of committing genocide in the region against Uyghur Muslims and ethnic minority with a large population in Xinjiang. Our next guest led that investigation for the Washington Post. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think electric car makers can or should do things differently? Should companies be held responsible for the things that happen in their supply chains? Should the U.S. government do more to crack down? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Evan Halper is a business reporter for The Washington Post covering the energy transition. Evan, welcome to Central Time. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we dig into Xinjiang province, I want to talk about uh, why we're talking about this industry and talking about it now. A lot of industries over the years have had troubled supply chains. You quote somebody, a lawyer uh, and supply chain management expert called Duncan Jepson. I want to quote this. We know from every other industry that there is that if we don't fix this now, in the early days of this transition... It'll be a massive mistake. Can you talk about what's at stake here in this growing industry? 
Yeah, I mean, the auto industry right now is at a real inflection point. I mean, we're moving from the internal combustion engine, obviously, to electric vehicles. Um, you know, it's a, a big, major industrial transition, one of the one of the biggest, um, you know, probably in history. And it, it involves many thousands of companies, millions of people um, and, you know, a lot of investment. And right now, these supply chains are heavily rooted in China. Um, and, and probably will be for some time. But a lot of those suppliers are now doing business in Xinjiang. Um, you know, Xinjiang is a place where um, there's there, there's so much forced labor going on or so much has been documented um, that the United States passed this, uh, you know, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which basically says any product that comes out of Xinjiang is presumed to be made with forced labor unless uh, the, you know, the seller of it can prove otherwise, and proving otherwise is nearly impossible because the Chinese government uh, has these anti-sanctions laws that makes it impossible for investigators, whether they're corporate investigators, uh, you know, or they're human rights investigators to get in and find out what is really happening there. And so, you know, we're at this place where it's illegal to bring these parts in, um, but a lot of companies are in a position where it's hard to find suppliers for some parts that that are are not connected to this area. Evan, can you paint us a picture of this uh, forced labor in China, in Xinjiang province, what it looks like as part of this wider uh, relocation, re-education effort? There's a lot tied up here. What does it mean for the people uh, at the center of this story? So it's it's largely targeted at Muslim ethnic minorities, particularly uh, the Uyghur minority. And you know, in China, they'll call them anti-terrorism laws, and and they'll say, you know, this is this is about uh, stopping terrorism, and giving people jobs, and you know, creating uh, you know, eliminating poverty and creating employment. But in the course of the way that they've implemented these, you know, so-called poverty alleviation and surplus labor programs. You know, there there have been hundreds, actually literally millions of people um, moved from their homes. You know, there have been documented uh, cases of, uh, you know, just, just hundreds of thousands of people put in internment camps um, at the peak of the repression, which would have been right before the pandemic. Um, since then, the, the Chinese government has said, well, a lot of our objectives have been met in, in kind of uh, sort of stopping the extremism and we're going to close a lot of these uh, detention centers. And so some of the internment camps have emptied out. But at the same time, this issue of surplus labor and moving people, um, you know, there's quotas and involve moving like literally millions of people from rural villages to these factory towns. And it's often coursed. Um, you know, the, the investigators say that if, uh, you know, you refuse the assignment, you could wind up being sent to prison. Um, you're, you're expected to comply with these orders when, you know, there's a lot of documented cases. When you get to your assigned town, you go through this kind of indoctrination training. Um, you know, it can be months long where you need to learn, you know, the Chinese language. Um, you know, there's military training, um, you know, there's, there's, there can be restrictions on whether you're allowed to see a Quran and what religion you can practice. And so it's a, and there's a high level of surveillance um, going on. And so it's a very kind of repressive environment to be in. The United Nations has recently, you know, a, a UN committee as recently as March um, said they looked at the vocational centers there and they often operate more like, um, uh, prisons, you know, places where where people are deprived of liberty, 
And in 2022, the UN went to uh, did the Human Rights Office did a, did a big report on on Xinjiang, and uh, said that there was evidence of crimes against humanity taking place there. The U.S. of course says that what's happening there is a genocide. Talking to Evan Halper from the Washington Post about his investigation into the supply chain in electric vehicles. So much of that chain moving through this Xinjiang province in China. Here in the U.S., we're not supposed to get products from that pro- that uh, province because of the forced labor situation. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your reactions, your questions. That's 800-642-1234. Evan, the heart of your reporting on this is the idea that you know some of the automakers are saying, we're trying not to get products made with forced labor. Uh, we're avoiding countries direct or companies, excuse me, directly named as providers. It's really hard to figure this out. You worked with a couple watchdog groups who found it not that hard to find evidence that, in fact, uh, American automakers were getting products from this province and probably from forced labor. What did you find? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's really what drove uh, our story here was the idea that some of these small NGOs, um, which are really just kind of a few people with some laptops, can turn up evidence uh, to show that, okay, you know, this component was made with materials that seem very clearly linked to Xinjiang and, you know, made their way into a Tesla or made their way into a Ford. Um, you know, at the same time, these companies are saying we have these, um, you know, strict policies. We do not allow any forced labor. We have no tolerance for it. Um, you know that we monitor our supply chains, and so we were trying to understand this disconnect. And when we looked at these supply chains and the way these companies are monitoring them, you know, what we found is if you look at like a, a supply chain for a, you know, a, a lithium-ion battery, it could have thirteen thousand companies in it. And there's different tiers, you know, these, you know, the, the, the tier one supplier uh, supplies directly to the company, but then they have their own suppliers that get them, uh, you know, the materials they need to make whatever that are selling to the company. And what we were finding is that the companies are, you know, they, they, they enforce these ethics codes on their tier one suppliers, and then they expect the tier one suppliers to uh, enforce them down the supply chain. And it, so instead of the companies actually looking at all the all of the suppliers that are involved in their supply chains, which sounds complicated and the companies say they are, but the more we dug into this, the more we realized there's actually lots of technology out there and lots of methods you could use uh, to look, to find you know, where your suppliers are coming from, um, what they're doing, who they're doing business with. Um, but often the auto companies are not choosing to go that route. And instead what they're doing is they're just sort of taking it on, uh, taking the word of the tier one supplier that they're enforcing these things. And what the tier one supplier is doing is they're just sending questionnaires to all the suppliers down the line. And as one of the investigators we talked to said, you know, the questionnaires, she called them hilarious. Like uh, they'll ask a you know supplier down the supply chain, are you using forced labor or using child labor, you know, and of course they'll say no. So, um, you know, this, these findings had prompted the Senate finance committee to open its own investigation. And, you know, they're finding much the same that, that these companies are just sort of imposing their ethics codes on these tier one suppliers, um, but not looking nearly hard enough down the supply chain. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Marcus is with us in Milwaukee. Marcus. Hi. Good afternoon, Rob. So I would say to everyone listening um, that we should consider going back to something. I think we'd be well served to go back to what we did in the 80s, where it was we buy American. 
we bring back American jobs, we'll improve an American economy, and then at the same time, we'll also be voting with our dollars that we do not accept this kind of treatment of people. We're not going to accept this kind of treatment down the line. And so that way it's controlled. And as Americans, we're smart enough to we need to figure this out. We can do this. We so can. Marcus, thanks a lot for the call. There are White House efforts to start uh, moving that supply chain to other countries and some of it here in the United States. Evan, but reading your piece, it's clear for so much of this, not just battery production, but you know, cobalt processing, uh, nickel processing, other components here. So much of it, China has a huge head start, a lot of it concentrated in this Xinjiang province. Yeah, and I should say the efforts to to uh, onshore a lot of this production, they're not trivial. I mean, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year, and it's, you know, we're talking many billions of dollars that, uh, you know, will be investing, the U.S. government will be investing, and taxpayers will be investing in, um, you know, trying to move these these plants over to the United States. But the the time it takes to ramp up production um and the you know the scale of what needs to be done um even that that major legislation that passed is is kind of a drop in the bucket i mean to get a mine open in the us um it can take 5 to 10 years a lot of these mining operations are already you know underway in in china and in xinjiang you know in in particular a lot of the processing is already happening there you know the 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 facilities the infrastructure is already set up and, um, you know, something like three quarters of the lithium ion batteries are being made in China right now. So, yes, some of that can be moved away from that country. And there's there's big efforts by uh, the Biden administration in Congress, Republicans also to move that production away from China. Um, but the other thing that's going on is that these car makers, I mean, like we looked at Tesla in particular, but, you know, it also applies to Volkswagen. It also applies to other companies. They've staked their future on sales in China. China's way ahead of uh, other countries in adoption of EVs right now. So if you want to sell EVs, it's, you know, it's a huge market just because China's a huge place. Um, but they're also something like 40 to 50 percent of the cars they're selling right now are EVs. It's a much lower percentage in the U.S. and 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 much of Europe. And so these companies are uh, concerned about rocking the boat. Tesla sells, you know, 40 percent of its vehicles in China, does a lot of production production in China. And, um, you know, they'll ask a lot of questions publicly about uh, things that potentially violate human rights in other parts of their supply chain, other parts of the world. But China is very sensitive for them because they're also concerned about losing access to that market. We're talking to Washington Post business reporter Evan Halper about his investigation of electric vehicle companies' connections to forced labor, particularly in the Xinjiang region of China. You can join in at 800-642-1234. As electric vehicles become more and more widespread, what do you want to see companies do about ethical issues in the industry, including the use of forced labor in China? Do you want or expect electric car companies to source as ethically as possible? Join in with your thoughts, your questions for our guest about his investigation at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation with Washington Post business reporter Evan Halper about his reporting on electric car manufacturers' connections to forced labor in a region of China where the U.S. has accused the country of conducting a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. 
You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about uh, this reporting, your reactions, 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Ernest is with us in Hayward. Ernest, hello. Hello. Slavery is definitely bad, but I wonder if that isn't being thrown out partially to conceal the fact that American car companies don't want to or cannot compete with China with electric vehicles. There is a way to make American car companies more competitive, and it's known as the free market. Why tax profits when you can tax carbon and other natural resource inputs? Let's go with our strength, which is the free market, but don't hamper the free market by taxing economic effort. Tax Ernest, uh, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Evan, uh, can the U.S. Uh, automakers compete, or and battery manufacturers for that matter, compete uh, with China, I think is at the core of Ernest's question. Yeah, I mean, you know, his point about um, about the way the market works, it, you know, it is it is fair to point out that the reason China has such a jump on this is because they have so heavily subsidized these industries. I mean, you know, we saw this with the solar industry also. They have spent, you know, many billions of dollars giving these industries a jump and trying to sort of corner the market. And in many ways, what's happening with the EV market is we already saw happen with the solar panel market where uh, we were comfortable for a while just buying these products from China, um, you know, letting their subsidies bring down the cost of some of these products. And but then, you know, things have changed. Relations between the companies have chilled and, you know, there it became almost a national security threat that China has so much control of the solar market. Um, you know, which is where the energy industry is going. And now with China having so much control of the EV market and, you know, they use a lot of subsidies to get there. And so that's sort of the thinking of policymakers in the U.S. that, uh, you know, we needed to kick in some subsidies also to help American companies compete and not let China have full control, uh, you know, of EV production. Thanks for that call. Getting back to Xinjiang province, Evan, and this U.S., uh, ruling that hey we you can't uh, bring products into America made with stuff from that province. Clearly, it seems like it's happening. Things from there are ending up over here in consumer products, including electric vehicles. What are we hearing from uh, whoever in the U.S. government would enforce that? So it would be the Customs and Border Patrol that would actually enforce that, and uh, you know they have seized. I was just talking about the solar panel market, uh, you know, I think 1,500 shipments last year of solar panels that largely on suspicion of forced labor. Whether they are going to do the same um, with these products, we will see. It's it's not easy work. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, even though these NGOs, like I mentioned, you know, a few laptops and, and they were able to find these ties. Uh, you know, the the Customs and Border Patrol has its hands full with a lot of, you know, we've got a lot of sanctions going on in this country right now. And there's also pressure from uh, the corporations for them not to uh, too aggressively enforce the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. But what we're also seeing is a lot of pressure from Congress on the other side saying, you know, we passed this act for a reason. Biden administration, you need to start enforcing it much more aggressively. We're seeing all kinds of violations happen. It's not that hard to find the violations. And, you know, there's so there's pressure from the Hill being put on the Biden administration to actually enforce the law that was passed. Whether the resources are put there, we will see a lot of experts I talked to said that these auto companies are in a tough spot and they need to they may be facing a reckoning similar to what the solar industry faced in the last couple of years. 
Evan, for both of those, the solar industry, electric vehicles, these are both things that are, are key to meeting commitments uh, for preventing or turning around climate change here in the U.S. A lot of efforts to make that happen. Uh, but those solar paddle confiscations you mentioned, they've slowed down some solar farms here in Wisconsin. I know there's a maybe an unresolvable conflict between the effort to electrify and get alternative sources of energy and then the reality that as of right now, this year, a lot of those products only are coming from China. Yeah, it's a huge tension point. I mean, I did cover the the solar side of this pretty um, thoroughly also. And, you know, and, and what you would hear was uh, from, you know, the climate activists and from the solar companies that like, you know, every shipment that's seized is slowing down the transition. And every time, you know, the price of solar panels goes up because we can't import these panels from China, uh, you know, that means fewer people are going to put solar panels on their roofs, fewer, fewer uh, utilities are going to install solar farms. It's going to take a hit. And it, it is a, you know, complicated um, sort of tension. I think, you know, what you'll hear from human rights activists is like, okay, there is a lot of tension here, but you've got to draw a red line somewhere where you're going to say, you know, we understand we have to, uh, you know, make this energy transition happen, but we also have to draw a red line. And they're saying, you know, slave labor is a place where you just obviously can draw a red line. And how do you argue with that? It seems like China is not going to change anytime soon in terms of labor laws, uh, transparency around enforcement of those laws that do exist. Is there a thought of a timeline where we could be making a higher proportion of the key batteries and other products in countries that aren't China? You know, there's so many variables to this. I mean, I think there is a lot of um, there, there. there's a lot of ground being broken on different kinds of plants in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, you're also seeing sort of neighbors of China that we have better relations with, seeing opportunity here. Um, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, places like that are, are, are really trying to get it in the game. Um, there's questions about whether, uh, you know, the, whether they're upholding the ethical standards that, you know, companies say that they abide by and will only buy from. Um, but certainly they're they're not Xinjiang. The other variable is um, the technology is changing. And so there's questions of, you know, do we invest in uh, all of this new infrastructure and, and recreate it in the United States? Or do we invest in research and development to try to create batteries that don't use some of these things that we're so reliant on China for and find new uh, chemistries and constructions of these vehicles and the batteries that power them that would be easier to manufacture in the United States. In just our last minute or so, Evan, what are you watching for in this story after this big investigation? I think what we're watching for is how aggressively the administration enforces the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Are they going to start seizing these shipments? We're seeing more and more evidence that the supply chains are infected by uh, you know, suppliers in, in Xinjiang. And so will the administration clamp down or is this just something they're going to look the other way on? Evan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your interest in our investigation. That's Evan Halper, business reporter at The Washington Post covering energy and the energy transition. He talked to us today about his investigation of electric car companies' connections to forced labor in a province in China. We'll get a link to that piece up at wpr.org slash central time. 
Remember, you can visit WPR.org anytime for live streams of us here on the Ideas Network and our Classical Music Network, plus archives of conversations. If you want to share this last conversation with someone you know, you can do that online at WPR.org, or you can download the Wisconsin Public Radio app for live streaming, archives, and news as well. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network.